The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Hello, everybody. My name is Dr. Clemens Rutner. I'm the director of research of the Trinity School of Languages, Literatures, and Cultural Studies. I will be uh, your host today, uh, and we were very glad um, to have uh, a speaker from our school here, uh, Professor Michael Cronin, who holds the 1776 chair of French. Uh, it would take a long time to in introduce him properly since he has published uh, intensively uh, on, for example, on travel literature, but also on translation. Uh, he is also the director of the Trinity Center of Literary Translation. And it is a great pleasure that we can kick off our school's research seminar uh, with uh, such a high-end uh, uh, talk. Uh, Michael, I'm very glad to have you here and uh, I won't waste your time any longer. So the floor is yours. Thank you. Uh, many thanks, uh, Clemens, and uh, hello, uh, everybody. Um, I suppose um, the the title, in the kind of circumstances in which we find ourselves, might uh, seem slightly self uh, self explanatory. Just to give you a, a little bit of background, um, I'm, I'm currently working on a new book uh, called uh, Eco Travel: uh, Journeying in the Age of the Anthropocene, but the kind of the both historical and contemporary relationship between travel writing and the uh, the environment, uh, and the kind of the, the, the final section uh, of the the, the book uh, bears the title uh, of this seminar at the end of of travel. Uh, although some of my more pessimistic friends have suggested that I remove uh, the question mark, uh, they're not terribly optimistic uh, about what the, the the future might hold in that uh, in that area. So basically what I want to try and do in the seminar uh, this afternoon is to uh, investigate or to, to look at uh, perhaps the, the, the dominant way in which we thought or we think uh, about uh, travel uh, and then to see how that needs to be revalued, needs to be rethought in terms of uh, various uh, factors, particularly environmental uh, factors that are going to have a huge incidence or effect uh, on the future of, of, of travel. Um, and then to uh, exp explore in perhaps more detail a, a particular kind of competing or uh, alternative paradigm to the, uh, the dominant one and think what some of the implications of that alternative uh, paradigm uh, might be. And, uh, because uh, this is very, very much uh, a work in, in progress, um, any comments, questions uh, that you might have, I would very much uh, welcome as part of the kind of the, this dialectical process of trying to, to construct or co-construct uh, this uh, object of, of knowledge. Um, one of the points that's made by Frank Snowden, who was considered to be one of the most, uh, I suppose, foremost historian uh, of uh, epidemics and their effects on human societies, is he basically makes the argument uh, that every age, uh, every society uh, gets the, uh, the epidemic it deserves. Um, uh, and in the, um, the kind of the new preface to the new edition 
of his uh, work on epidemics and society uh, that has just uh, came out a number of, of, of months ago. Um, he makes this explicit. He said that COVID-19 flared up and spread because it's suited uh, to the uh, society that we have, uh, have made. So basically a society uh, or world where there's uh, 8 billion people on the planet, uh, we have extensive uh, urbanization, we have rapid uh, air travel, this, this kind of the, uh, the time-space compression of the 20th century created by uh, jet uh, transport. Um, so we've got all these densely crowded cities cities are linked by international air travel, this becomes um, an ideal breeding ground for pulmonary uh, viruses. Uh, and of course, one of the effects of this kind of demographic uh, expansion uh, and the frenetic uh, urbanization uh, that Snowden talks about uh, is that uh, there's a wide scale uh, violation of animal uh, habitats. And so we get this uh, striking increase in uh, zoonotic uh, diseases where there's kind of animal-human uh, uh, transmission. So to some extent, the kind of uh, the, sort of the travel lockdown that we're experiencing now as a result of COVID is in, in many respects a subset of uh, a much wider uh, problem, uh, one that is uh, both uh, immediate and one with long-term effects, which of course is the, uh, the overall uh, impact of uh, climate change uh, on our societies and uh, cultures. Um, one of the uh, arguments that's been made by uh, a number of um, commentators uh, on the uh, the virus is that it raises questions uh, which are to do with uh, large environmental questions, which is uh, the impact uh, of, of flight, of uh, air travel uh, on our environment. On the 25th of uh, January this year, um, the Travel, uh, one of the travel uh, writers for the Irish Times, uh, Manchon Nagan, um, wrote a column in which he said, I could never have predicted a year ago that I'd be writing this article proclaiming my intention to give up uh, flying abroad on holidays. Um, and he, he sort of gives his, his reason for this. He said, it had to stop. I'm responsible for coaxing too many people to fly already. If I have the soot of their carbon emissions on my hands. Either way, I cannot continue to promote the further pollution of this planet, poisoning it for future generations, just so I can take free holidays and get paid to uh, report uh, on them. So it was a very kind of brave uh, admission on the part of someone who was making his living, if you like, uh, out of, of travel writing, a kind of decision um, to uh, no longer uh, travel by, by air. What was kind of prompting um, this decision? Um, well, this, uh, the arguments um, are uh, fairly well rehearsed at this stage. Uh, we know that since 1990, um, that emissions, CO2 emissions from international air transport have increased by something of the order of uh, 83%. Uh, um, that we have uh, in terms of the, uh, the aircraft emissions themselves, um, that because uh, most of them uh, 
the emissions occur at high uh, altitudes and that they are particularly harmful in terms of the, the chemical uh, reactions um, that they uh, trigger. Um, and the, uh, the International Panel on, on Climate Change uh, has uh, estimated that the, the sort of the impact uh, of aircraft is two to four times greater uh, than the effect of the carbon dioxide emissions alone. In other words, it's not just the CO2 uh, that they emit, it's also the set of chemical reactions uh, that they then set in, in train, uh, which is particularly harmful atmospheric effects, something that's often, uh, if you like, brushed aside uh, by propagandists uh, for the, uh, the air transport uh, industry. Uh, and of course, um, pandemic uh, notwithstanding, we have to see how we're going to come out uh, of this, uh, but certainly if we return to anything like business as, as usual, and um, the emissions uh, stand to triple uh, by 2015. Um, so in the words of Andrew Murphy, um, who is a, um, looks after kind of the aviation sector in a kind of think tank in Brussels called uh, Transport and the Environment, Euro for Euro, uh, R for R, uh, flying is the quickest and cheapest way to harm the planet. Um, now, what I would um, argue is that to some extent, what we have in the case of uh, air transport is um, a kind of a very succinct expression uh, of the particular dilemma uh, that we face in the age of the Anthropocene, which is that one of the things that tends to characterize uh, the 20th century kind of the, the, the high arc high age of, of globalization towards the end of the 20th century, the early 21st century, um, was what uh, Paul Virilio, uh, the French uh, thinker, calls the revolution of externalization. Uh, in other words, one of the things that was permitted uh, initially by time-space compression at a national level, uh, the building of the railways, and then by time space compression at a uh, international or global level uh, with uh, jet uh, transport is that you had increasingly extended uh, supply uh, chains, you had increasingly extended value-added uh, chains which allowed you to produce uh, thousands of miles away from the point of, of, of consumption. And that what, what you find then uh, increasingly is um, the rise of uh, outsourcing, the rise of externalization. And so it, there's the kind of kinetic inferno uh, that we find after the collapse uh, of uh, the Berlin Wall, the end of the, uh, the Cold War, the deregulation of the markets in 86, the deregulation of air transport. We find this rapid uh, increase in externalization. And the problem about that revolution of externalization is that the climate of the environmental costs are absolutely prohibitive. Um, if we tend to look at what tends to be sort of dominant notions of how economic growth happens, how transport is to develop and, and so on, uh, we still find uh, a kind of a viewpoint that is very much anchored in this revolution of externalization. And one of the points that uh, Virilio uh, makes in this, uh, the futurism of the, uh, the instant is um, that one of the, the great intellectual challenges of the, the 21st century will be what he calls the revolution of internalization. In other words, that it's no longer possible 
uh, for our planet to sustain environmentally, um, these kind of extended forms of outsourcing, this extended uh, supply chains and, and so on, uh, that there's a much greater need for proximate production and proximate consumption. Um, so, uh, and this is something, if you like, uh, that will uh, spread uh, into every er area of our lives, because uh, if it doesn't, uh, we simply won't have a planet left uh, to live on, or at least uh, other species will live in the planet, uh, but we as a species uh, will be condemned to, uh, to disappear. So if then the great challenge uh, of our, our time is this revolution of internalization, if this is what in fact we should be thinking about and teaching in our universities, is how do we prepare ourselves uh, for this uh, uh, coming uh, revolution? How does that mean or how does that affect the way in which we think uh, about uh, transport or travel uh, itself. Uh, one of the curious things about um, intellectual work sometimes is um, that you, uh, we, we tend to think often of knowledge or inquiry as, as you know, kind of a, a thing, this arrow that's forever uh, going, going forwards. Um, but I, I think in the humanities and social sciences, very often there's a kind of a looping effect, you know, where you, you kind of loop back to, to an earlier idea, which uh, then, because of changed circumstances, uh, finds um, a greater resonance uh, in terms of your own thinking uh, about it. Uh, and I just want to refer briefly to uh, a, a book that I published um, almost 20 years ago at this stage, a book across, uh, called Across the Lines, where basically I was trying to um, look at what struck me as an extraordinary kind of gap in uh, writing on travel literature, uh, which was the extraordinary absence uh, of the question of language and translation. Um, you, you've got all these kind of travel accounts where people would talk about, um, they would report very detailed uh, in-depth discussions uh, with uh, farmers uh, in the Chilean Andes. And you kind of wondered, well, how on earth did they get that information? How on earth could they communicate these kinds of things unless they had a very, very advanced degree of foreign language knowledge? So it was, it was the kind of the concealment, the, the, the hiding away of language difference, of translational necessity in these accounts, which um, particularly kind of interested me at the, at the time to try and ex expose this, if you like, in, in travel literature, this kind of great gap or, or absence. But one of the things that I was um, uh, got interested in developing was um, a kind of a, a two paradigm model uh, of, of, of travel. Um, the first was, um, I suppose, what one might call the more conventional model. And this is the kind of notion um, that we, uh, that when we travel, we, we get in a plane, uh, we go to a distant uh, location, it's a different culture, a different language, uh, and, and, and so on. So conventionally, when we think of travel, that's what we tend to think of doing. We tend to think of going reasonably far away in space, perhaps time, uh, language, uh, culture, uh, and, and, and so on. And, and this is, if you like, the kind of pole of travel that's been much written about. And the pole of travel has been much less uh, written about is the, the other pole, which is uh, vertical uh, travel. Now, where this originally came out of was um, I was trying to set up an opposition between um, what happens when you go to a country where um, they speak a language you don't speak, so you don't speak Japanese, you don't speak Chinese, you don't speak uh, Brazilian uh, Portuguese, and how do you cope with this? And I was contrasting that then with countries where uh, you do speak the language, so 
I go to Britain, an English person comes to uh, Ireland, uh, a British travel writer goes to the United States, a US travel writer goes to Britain, so they share the same language, but are there translation difficulties? Are there translation problems? So, um, of course, what the research uh, revealed was that there were enormous <laughs> translational difficulties and problems. But just sticking with the, 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 the notion of vertical travel, um, this was the idea of, um, uh, and it, it came from this kind of the, 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 the homophone model of, kind of staying in the same language areas. Um, thinking about travel where you remain within the same space, and you, you, you remain within the same uh, language. Um, and how do you travel in, in that sense? Um, and one of the things then that, um, so this is you know, a model I developed for, for, for that, but then when I began to uh, reflect on the consequences of uh, the environmental uh, emergency, the climate emergency, the, the, uh, the climate catastrophe uh, for the future of travel, uh, then I began to think again uh, about the, the kind of potential uh, of this notion of vertical uh, travel. Um, one of the points that's um, made by uh, Robert McFarlane in, uh, in Underland, uh, and it's, it's a point that's um, also uh, taken up uh, by, um, in, the, in the book uh, Vertical um, by Stephen uh, Graham, is um, that we uh, have a curious kind of attitude to verticality. Um, to, 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 to depth, um, that we tend to celebrate height, but we tend to despise depth. Um, because when you think about it, uh, we talk about an experience that is uplifting, right? this notion uh, of um, that height is a good thing. Uh, but when you're, you, the, the, but when you're depressed, it's the notion of being pushed down. So it's kind of this kind of uh, depth notion, uh, or the you, you, you literally are kind of pulled down by 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 this thing. If you think of the word a catastrophe, what does catastrophe uh, literally means? It means a downwards uh, turn. Uh, cataclysm is a notion of downwards uh, violence. Um, so one of the points that the Stephen Graham makes is uh, that we tend to be very much kind of culturally indoctrinated by a sort of um, a tradition of horizontality, a kind of flat geography and a flat cartography, uh, which means um, that we tend to uh, not think uh, very much uh, in, in kind of depth uh, terms. And one of the, uh, the effects of that, of course, is um, not just a perceptual one, Right? Uh, of not being curious about what is underland, what is uh, underground, but also political in terms of the hidden networks uh, of uh, extraction, uh, of mining, uh, of exploitation, all of these networks, if you like, which are concealed, which are kind of hidden underground, uh, which is everything from landfill uh, sites, uh, plastic, uh, to the disposal of uh, nuclear uh, waste. Um, so Robert McFarlane in his 2019 book um, is uh, very keen, if you like, to, to redeem uh, a notion uh, of uh, verticality, uh, a notion of, of, of depth as a way of expo exposing the kind of the, the hidden political uh, and, and more particularly the, the hidden ecological uh, infrastructures of our society and the kinds of costs that are uh, attendant uh, upon this. Um, he says, the underland is vital to the material structures of contemporary existence, as well as to our memories, myths, and metaphors. 
It is a terrain with which we, we daily reckon and by which we are daily shaped. Yet we are disinclined to recognize the underland's presence in our lives, to admit its disturbing forms to our imaginations. Our flat perspectives feel increasingly inadequate to the deep worlds we inhabit and to the deep times uh, legacies we are uh, leaving. And Emile uh, Zola, the French novelist, once famously said um, that when you want to appreciate uh, the true nature of, uh, of Paris, uh, go into its sewage system. Don't look at the monuments. Uh, this is where uh, the true uh, spirit or nature uh, of the city is to be uh, is to be found. What I want to do uh, now is um, just suggest very very quickly um, three brief ways uh, of, um, if you like, expressing. Uh, this notion of vertical uh, travel, uh, which I'm going to draw from the, uh, the French uh, tradition. Then I'm going to give some contemporary uh, examples from the, uh, the English-speaking uh, uh, world uh, before going on to look at how this notion of vertical travel uh, both challenges certain notions that we have about writing uh, and about writing about uh, travel, uh, and secondly, about how we relate uh, to uh, both other peoples and to other species uh, in our, our world. Um, so basically I'm going to say that there are three potential vertical uh, strategies. One, the infraordinary. Uh, secondly, what I'm going to call the ethnology of proximity. And the third, uh, interstitial uh, traveling. Uh, the infraordinary is a term coined by the French as you can see here in the slide, uh, Georges Perec, um, who tragically died at the early age of, of 46, um, but not before leaving an extremely varied and interesting uh, work. One of the things that um, Perec was particularly interested in is how you, uh, when you're a when you're in a particular space, it's just the sheer complexity of that space. Um, so in his Espèce d'Espace, he starts with his bed, and then it's his room, uh, then the building, then outside of the building, uh, then the, the, the arrondissement, the area, uh, then the, the, the city, and, and so on. These, these kind of nested boxes of, of, of complexity. In the, in the other, um, in this tentative d'épuisement d'un lieu parisien, um, he stayed at the, the same uh, cafe, still there in Paris, beside the Saint-Sulpice uh, church, the Café de la Mairie. Uh, and in this Café de la Mairie, he just diligently noted day after day after day, every single thing that he saw, everything he could possibly uh, commit to, 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 to paper. And of course, as he kind of detailed um, what, what he saw, that, two things emerged. One was the extraordinary complexity of just the, the things that were passing before his very eyes, kind of teaching him to, to look uh, again, uh, but also uh, in many ways the incomparable weirdness and the strangeness uh, of, of reality uh, when you take a close look at it. So what Perec argued is, and he felt this is one of the, 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 the the business, uh, part of the business of, of aesthetics was to make one sensitive to and aware of this, the, the sheer kind of complexity uh, of the infraordinary that was made available to this kind of vertical traveling, this traveling within uh, one place and uh, one uh, space. The second, the ethnology of proximity, is a kind of a reversal of the ethnographic gaze. Um, this is, I mean, it, it first really, uh, emerges in the 18th century when uh, Montesquieu, the famous uh, French uh, political philosopher, um, in Les Lettres Persanes, the, the, the Persian letters, um, imagines 
uh, you know, uh, these Persian travelers arrive in, in, in Paris um, and through there he describes his own country as you know it would appear to these foreign travelers um, so in other words he's, he's engaged in, an, in, a, in, a, in this activity of ethnographic self-description um, and through projecting or showing it through the eyes of these, these, these others, it's a way of exposing uh, all kinds of paradoxes, inconsistencies, uh, injustices uh, in uh, French society. A contemporary exponent uh, of this would be uh, the man you can see here on your uh, slide, uh, Marc Auger, um, with his um, a series of books, one is Walking Through the Luxembourg Gardens in Paris, uh, another is uh, uh, an ethnologist, ethnographer uh, in the uh, the French and the Parisian uh, underground. So again, this is kind of vertical traveling, but it's a vertical traveling. It's engaged in a kind of ethnographic defamiliarization, which again is to, to reveal uh, the complexity of the spaces that are, are inhabited uh, by by people. The the third the interstitial uh, traveling um, is allied, if you like, to the 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 uh, to both the infraordinary and the ethnology uh, of proximity, um, which is this um, notion that was first sort of expressed in 1794 uh, by uh, Xavier de Maistre in his famous book Voyage autour de ma chambre, um, where he um, describes um, his, his room in, 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 in Paris, um, his bedroom is almost as if he was engaged in some perilous sea journey. So he gets out of the bed and there's this, this extraordinary difficult, long laborious journey to get to the dresser, uh, to the, the chest of drawers, and he gets in the chest of drawers uh, to um, the uh, the bathroom or the what, what serves as a bathroom at the, 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 the time's kind of bathtub he had and um, so um, and, and by by describing this in a particular way it's to show just how complex uh, that seemingly reduced space uh, is uh, François Maspero fast forwarding to the uh, early 1990s he goes from uh, Roissy uh, Charles de Gaulle the airport to the Gare du Nord the main railway station, uh, station uh, in, in, in Paris, in the north of the city. Um, and normally this will take you about 45 minutes if you take the uh, the train uh, from Roissy to the city centre. It takes him uh, two months. So what does he do in the two months? Well, basically what he does is he gets off at every single stop on the way. Um, so uh, what in a kind of lateral or uh, horizontal uh, flat vision would seem like this kind of stream of endless, slightly nondescript grey uh, high rises that pass by you uh, on your uh, as you zip into, into Paris. Uh, what he does in, in the book is reveal the extraordinary complexity of the cultures, languages, histories, and so on that are embedded uh, in these places on the route from the uh, the airport. So it's almost if he's getting at the interest these days. He's getting into the uh, the little spaces uh, in in between uh, the, the in between stations between the two big point of departure, the point of arrival, uh, to describe uh, the complexity uh, of um, these uh, spaces and places and peoples. Um, so this, if you like, are are, are kind of three. Uh, ways uh, of formulating or expressing uh, a vertical uh, travel uh, paradigm. Um, one of the points that uh, Robert McFarlane makes in an earlier book, Landmarks from 2015, um, is the way in which um, it, 
people, what, what, particular writers that he calls particularizers, um, who, who tend to describe uh, restricted uh, areas, restricted uh, places. Um, he was thinking of um, people like Nan Shepherd um, and her, her famous book on the Cairngorms, Cairngorm uh, Mountains uh, in, uh, in Scotland, um, where he says that um, what they, they, they do is by very careful observation of a, a place, a very particular focus on, on, on a place, um, and which is matched by a kind of precision of, of, of utterance, that what you get is not a limiting of vision, but a deepening of, of, of vision. Um, so that this kind of particularism is not a kind of a xenophobic defensive uh, localism, you know, a, a kind of parochial uh, tribalism, uh, but rather is using uh, depth as a way of revealing the kind of fractal uh, complexity of, of place. So how has this been done in uh, other uh, forms of contemporary uh, writing? Well, one of the books that nicely uh, illustrates this alongside the, the, the French exemplars that I gave um, a few moments ago um, is a uh, book called uh, Mount uh, London, um, where you uh, various writers and uh, urban cartographers uh, were invited uh, to write uh, about um, the various places in London that sort of uh, rise up. So it's everything from Crystal Palace, which rises to uh, 112 uh, meters, um, to uh, Primrose Hill, that's 78 uh, meters. Um, you had um, Battersea Power Station is covered in the, uh, the book, um, but it also is a kind of a downward verticality as well, where they go into uh, various parts of the underground network uh, in, in, in London. And again, what's happening here is that as they're sort of, you know, uh, engaging in this kind of vertical traveling, uh, they're opening up the complexity of these spaces. It's kind of a political re-engagement uh, with place which is uh, suggested uh, by this in, in, in various ways. And what is sometimes uh, referred to as the, uh, the Arab X uh, movement. You also get uh, a lot of people who uh, legally or illegally uh, explore underground uh, London, uh, the various parts of, of the city as a way of kind of freeing or liberating uh, the city from all kinds of private property constraints uh, and, and so on. So there's a kind of a, a guerrilla radical uh, edge to that particular uh, movement in its uh, expression. But the, the idea being is it's kind of, it's, it's a way of kind of re-empowering, rediscovering uh, the taken for granted uh, everyday uh, surroundings. And um, other examples uh, of this from New York, uh, Alexandra Horowitz's um, book on looking 11 walks with expert eyes, where basically what she does is um, she walks her, her neighborhood uh, in uh, Manhattan, um, but each time she walks, um, she walks with a different person. So she walks with uh, an urban sociologist, she walks with an artist, uh, a geologist, a physician, 
sound uh, designer, uh, a dog. Uh, she walks with her five-year-old uh, son. And, and each of the chapters, if you like, uh, shows how this same neighborhood is perceived in radical different ways uh, by these, these, these people are bringing radically different uh, gazes or perceptions uh, to the things that they observe uh, or uh, see. Um, Jan uh, Salasevich's uh, uh, book, The Planet in a Pebble, uh, basically takes the kind of pebble uh, that you would find on any beach. You can see it there on the cover of his book. Uh, and he uses his book then as a way of showing how within that, that pebble, uh, you can, uh, if you like, perceive uh, everything uh, from uh, the uh, Big Bang to the formation of uh, the stars uh, to what is going on at the core uh, of the uh, of the planet. Uh, Sean Borrowdale's uh, poetic, 300-page uh, poetic meditation uh, on the city of London, Notes for Atlas, is again part of that kind of vertical traveling, the kind of the fractal exploration of the city of London. And Carl Whitney, in his book, uh, Hidden City Explorations uh, of the City of, of, of Dublin, um, uh, for example, goes down uh, through the, uh, the sewage the, the network uh, in the, uh, under the city of Dublin and discovers this whole other city that's lying uh, underneath uh, the city uh, which I'm giving this uh, lecture and uh, where many of you are, are listening uh, to it. So again, um, what, what emerges in all of these uh, different uh, cases then is um, the extent uh, to which uh, vertical uh, traveling, uh, a paradigm that has been variously neglected in thinking about uh, travel, is one that we may need to re-engage with and, and, and think with, think about, um, not just in terms of the immediate of the uh, proximity of, of the pandemic, but the larger question uh, of uh, the ecological challenge or cost uh, of horizontal horizontal travel. I think there are other dimensions to uh, vertical traveling which are, are worth bearing in mind. Um, the first is, um, I want to borrow a term here from the great Caribbean uh, thinker Stuart uh, Hall, um, his uh, notion of vernacular cosmopolitanism. Basically what uh, Hall argued is traditionally when we, in, in the kind of cosmopolitan imagination, something that kind of deeply informs uh, the way in which foreign languages uh, were introduced into modern universities, the kind of chair uh, that, I, that I hold in, 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 in Trinity, which was created in 1776. Um, the notion that, that what travel involved was going to distant places, speaking, that they, learning the languages, speaking the languages, getting acquainted with the culture uh, and, and, and so on. Um, and th so this is the, 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 the notion of, of the cosmopolitan was to do with spatial distance um, and a cultural remove. Um, what Hall argues is that the signature of uh, contemporary migration um, is uh, that radical alterity is next door. Uh, it's the corner shop. Um, it's uh, beside you uh, on the bus, the, the, the tram, the, 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 the radical language difference, uh, radical uh, cultural difference, radical historical experiences and, and so on, that these are gathered uh, to, together uh, in, the, uh, in cities 
uh, both large and small across the, the, the planet as a result of historical forces, uh, economic globalization, uh, migratory patterns, and, and, and so on. So one of the, the challenges then of, of vertical traveling is the exploration of that kind of vernacular cosmopolitanism, um, the, 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 the extraordinary kind of um, cultural linguistic complexity that inhabits all of our proximate uh, spaces, uh, and which of course tend to be blithely uh, ignored in the uh, homogenizing uh, essentialist uh, readings of you know, particular places, uh, cultures, uh, peoples, and, and, and so on. Um, and this is why, for example, James Clifford, uh, the American uh, anthropologist, uh, argues for, this is not so much for, for travel literature, which he says is, is kind of uh, writing in a kind of bourgeois uh, sense, and more for travel stories, is that, that when people come to a particular place, um, they have uh, these uh, linguistic uh, cultural, historical, uh, sociological stories uh, that they, they, they bring with them, uh, but so often these stories go unheard uh, because a lack of linguistic, uh, cultural or political receptivity uh, on the part uh, of, the, um, of the receiving uh, cultures. Here I think we have, because, you know, um, this seminar is being offered by the School of Languages, Literatures uh, and Cultural Studies. Um, I, I think there's a relationship here between this notion of, of vernacular cosmopolitanism, uh, vertical uh, travel, uh, and how we think about foreign languages themselves. Um, one of the, the um, I, I think one of the great challenges of that foreign uh, language, um, those who argue for the value of foreign languages uh, have to deal with constantly is that, um, Foreign languages go very much against the, the kind of contemporary taste for investment in the instantaneous, uh, the quick, uh, the rapid, the fast track, uh, the fast delivery, uh, Amazon premium, uh, the notion um, that the quicker it is, the better it is, uh, the leaner, the sleeker, the more performative, uh, and, 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 and so on. Um, and this militates very much against um, what I would call uh, durational uh, time, which is the kind of long time that you need to invest in particular kinds of practice. And of course, one of them is the acquisition of, of foreign languages. And I often, uh, what, what, what I, I sometimes think is that um, one of the advantages of, from a foreign language standpoint, of thinking about vertical as opposed to horizontal travel is that very often when we present uh, foreign language, uh, learn the value of foreign language, we tend to kind of show people pictures of foreign places and people having great times in French cafes or in uh, German beer houses or um, in Italian restaurants. Um, so it's the idea that, you know, you, 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 you go elsewhere, it's a kind of, it's, it's, it's the leaving the departure. Um, whereas, um, so it's very much this kind of flat uh, horizontal mode. Whereas I think the experience of many, many, many people um, who acquire a foreign language is that the real uh, value and, uh, of the experience is the vertical traveling in the culture. It's the vertical habitation of the culture, the, the extended period of time that you spend in that culture, absorbing uh, the language, the culture, the, 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 the history, the, the kind of sociocultural uh, cues and, and, and so on. Um, so if you like, um, 
shifting to a kind of vertical paradigm, uh, I think allows one to think more deeply about the importance of the durational. Uh, and of course, one of the things that's absolutely crucial if we were to get out of this appalling kind of ecological mess that we've got ourselves into is that we must, must move away from instantaneous to durational forms of thinking. We must, in, in, in the words of, of Fox, the man who, who found the, the polio uh, vaccine, we must discover how to be good ancestors uh, to leave the, the world. And in order to do that, then we have to think long term, we have to think durationally, we have to think in what's sometimes called the, the seven generation uh, perspective, what kind of world would you like to live, leave uh, people seven generations uh, ahead. Um, so th this kind of vertical um, durational uh, paradigm is, uh, it seems to me, is, is, is one potential way of, of doing this. Um, one of the um, features that one becomes uh, very conscious of in, in, in writing uh, a book about uh, travel is um, how long uh, and how loudly people proclaim uh, the end of travel, just as I'm doing uh, in this uh, seminar. Um, but usually what they mean by the end of travel is something very different from what I'm talking about. Um, they're talking about the end of travel in the sense of that great um, kind of exploratory sense of an unknown world uh, which was unsullied by uh, mass tourism, uh, by the great unwashed hordes uh, invading uh, the spaces uh, of exploratory uh, privilege. Um, it just a, a nice example is provided by um, Paul Fussell in, in what is you know, otherwise an excellent um, book, um, but he says because um, travel is uh, hardly uh, possible uh, anymore. He, if I go back to the, uh, yeah, uh, because travel is hardly possible anymore. Um, this is an inquiry into the nature of travel and travel right between the wars will resemble a threnody. I'm afraid a consideration of the tourism that apes it will be like uh, a satire. We get another kind of version of this in what's sometimes called the decline of diversity trope. Uh, here's a, a picture of Claude Lévi Strauss, uh, and in his uh, famous um, book Triste Tropique came out in 1955. Um, he talks uh, basically about how um, the diverse worlds that he encountered uh, are uh, being uh, destroyed by Western uh, consumerism. So it's a kind of notion that that, that the travel uh, is no longer possible. Uh, it's completely destroyed by the kind of massification, uh, the Disneyfication uh, of, of travel uh, by the, the malignant and malign presence uh, of, of, of tourism. Um, but one of the things, of course, one can argue is that that depends on how you conceive of or think about uh, travel itself. What kind of paradigm uh, you're working off or with or into and what might be uh, some of the uh, political uh, consequences uh, of that. Um, one of the um, consequences that uh, I would like to, to mention, um, because I, I think it's quite, um, it, it sort of, it brings us back to my point uh, of, of, of departure, uh, which is um, the relationship uh, between uh, humans, uh, the environment, uh, and their forms of, of, of traveling or, or displacement. Um, one of the uh, arguments being made by uh, thinkers like um, the Indian 
the theorist um, Deepesh Chakrabarti, is that, that, that humans um, now find themselves, that they're, 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 they're kind of status has, has changed, but at, at one level, um, they have shifted from being, if you like, uh, environmental uh, agents. They were sort of uh, agents with, uh, along with all the other agents, um, such as the rivers, uh, winds, uh, other uh, animal species, and, and so on, to being geological agents where the cumulative effect of human actions uh, was the equivalent of the shifting of tectonic plates or the eruption of earthquakes, they literally could uh, reshape uh, the, uh, the world. Um, so uh, as a result of anthropogenic climate change, humans have, have become these geological uh, agents. Um, but of course, uh, an aspect of that geological agency is that humans have um, are destroying uh, the very infrastructures that they are dependent on. I mean, the most recent uh, report from the World Wildlife uh, Federation, um, you know, uh, gives you know, uh, statistic after statistic after statistic uh, to detail the catastrophic effect uh, of uh, human uh, activities uh, on the uh, the infrastructure uh, that will sustain human existence, everything from insects uh, populations to the quality of our uh, water supply. So uh, one of the things um, that one has got to develop in um, what's sometimes called post-human age, sometimes called the a-human age, um, sometimes called the post-anthropocentric uh, age, is the notion of a transversal subjectivity. In other words, how do we think about ourselves in a transversal, not a hierarchical, but a transversal relationship uh, with the more than uh, human world, the more than uh, human environment. And as part of this, then, there's a movement um, <clears throat> which has um, uh, emerged in, in, in the last two, two, two decades, um, when the pioneers being the, um, the late great um, eco-feminist uh, Val Plumwood, um, where she called for um, a, a new animism. Um, and, and what is meant by this is that um, the notion of uh, the, the world around us, the more than human world, uh, being an animate uh, world uh, with presence, personality, expressivity, and uh, agency, and the, precisely the, the, the what indigenous populations have uh, known and expressed for millennia, um, but was very much despised uh, in a kind of a curious mixture of Cartesian dualism, uh, Newtonian <clears throat> science, uh, and uh, Christian or a certain uh, tradition in Christian uh, theology, um, that it was seen as, as a mark of uh, magical, lesser, primitive uh, forms of, of thinking. Whereas what they're, they're arguing, um, so uh, people like uh, Plumwood, and then more recently, uh, people like Dominique Tistel, uh, Jacques uh, Derrida, Eric Baraté, and, and, and others, is that we have to, to, to uh, think about this more than human environment, uh, about the, 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 the other species, uh, the, 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 the other presences that are there in that world, rivers, uh, trees, 
of uh, other animals uh, and, 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 and so on. Um, and how this kind of uh, what Jane Bennett calls a vital materiality uh, becomes a, a cognizant part of our world. So one of the things I would argue is um, that one of the potential uh, benefits of thinking about this uh, vertical uh, travel paradigm um, is uh, a way of kind of reinvesting um, or, or, or bringing that new animism into the ways in which we think about our environments. In other words, it's not simply a question of thinking about uh, the other humans that are, 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 are cohabiting uh, this environment uh, with us that was so tellingly described uh, by uh, Stuart Hall, uh, but also uh, the, the other species, the other more than human presences that invest and inform our lives, uh, including uh, the multitude of uh, organisms, uh, the internal fauna uh, that are within our, our own bodies. And one of the things that I think has been exemplified in remarkable and striking detail is um, the expressive uh, agency of those more than human environments. The very fact that I'm sitting here uh, in a room in my apartment uh, talking to you rather than sitting in the long room hub uh, is an extraordinary manifestation of a particular kind of vital materiality, uh, these new forms uh, of animism uh, that we're becoming conscious of as a result uh, of our environmental uh, predicament. I, I did say, however, uh, earlier, um, I did make a distinction between uh, instantaneous and durational time. So I think maybe I've durated <laughs> long enough. Um, and um, I would be very happy to um, uh, answer any questions or if you have any comments or, or queries, because this is very much a work in progress and would very much welcome uh, uh, any feedback that you might, might have. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Michael. Uh, this was really a great and inspiring talk. Uh, you gave us so much to chew on and to, to, to think about. I would like the audience to send me your questions uh, through the Q&A function. Uh, I think I've already uh, one here. Um, and Enrica Ferrara is asking, the idea of vertical travel is fascinating, but I was just wondering, especially in the light of the interconnectedness of our post-human era, if the idea of vertical travel as opposed to horizontal travel does not repropose a binary paradigm. Can you give us your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I, I, I think the, the notion of, of, of verticality, you know, for, for me, um, in terms of the, the, the connectedness, I, I think one of the things that, that, that's, that's pretty crucial, uh, and this is why I don't think that they, they kind of, they, they map each other in the way that they, they potentially could, and uh, I think Enrique is, is, is right to point to that danger, is this notion of, of, the, of the proximate. Um, because I, I think one of the things that's, um, if you like, uh, has kind of bedeviled us or, or, or has got us into the kind of mess that I think that, that we're in, is the notion that somehow, uh, as the same friend, fairly could be, we, we could, could kind of um, abstract ourselves from our, our, our kind of local placidness and, and, uh, and, and situatedness and, and engage in these kind of flat horizontal fantasies. Whereas I, I think the, thing, the crucial thing about uh, the notion of verticality um, is that you know it it, it does anchor you in 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 uh, not in a kind of a, a kind of rooted kind of 
grundstück kind of foundational uh, sense but it, but it, in, in terms of the kind of coordinates you know it, it, it it's, it's going to situate you in in, in a specific uh, place at a specific time and I, and I think um, that that's where it's important because I, it's not just a question of um, what then becomes you know theoretically possible or theoretically feasible uh, but also and this is a, I suppose a very big concern of mine is um, it, it then allows for certain kinds of political interventions that I think are are, 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 are crucial and so therefore I, I think I think there is a difference it, it doesn't quite map in the way that potentially it, it could um, I have a question to ask myself, Michael. Um, namely, I was thinking of Joris Karl uh, Hausmanns or Usmans, as you probably say in French. Arebu is, uh, is basically also an attempt to travel, but then to give up travel because it's too tiresome. And actually, this guy finds that he has everything in his house already. So what's the, what's the need of, of going to England, for example? Yeah, well, it's kind of interesting because uh, was, was a big... This is decadent, of course, yeah? This is decadent travel then, which yeah. you your head rather than into, uh, into, into over the channel to, into England, yeah? Yeah, well, some extent, I mean, what's kind of interesting is that, I mean, he was a big fan uh, of Xavier de Mestre. I mean, de Mestre was kind of an influence on, on Mismos when he was writing uh, a robot. Um, and what, what's, what's, what's kind of interesting is that um, and, and even find it kind of in, in, in Baudelaire's kind of notion of the flaneur in the, in the, in the city of Paris, because that's kind of quite, quite circumscribed, um, is that I think there's a kind of interesting tradition of writers who kind of reacted against the kind of the, the flat horizontal sort of uh, paradigm, because of course, you know, I'm describing it in the, in, the, in the present age, but I mean, this has been going on for, for centuries. Um, and, and, and so part of the reaction uh, against that uh, is often put under the label uh, of, 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 the, of the decadent movement. But it, it seems to be the one thing that, um, you know, kind of uh, Baudelaire in is kind of the anti-exotic kind of repudiation of certain kind of paradigms that come from that kind of um, horizontal traveling tradition. Um, it, 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 it also finds its way into Wiesmann's uh, writing uh, where they, they, they want to kind of explore the potential uh, of this um, vertical uh, travel. And, and in a sense, it is, can this be connected to, to Marcel Proust, you know, in his cork-lined uh, apartment in, 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 in Paris, you know, where he, he you know, he, he engages in this kind of vertical tra travel, you know, uh, through his own uh, family society and, 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 and so on. Yeah, I have another, uh, thank you, Michael. I have another uh, question here uh, by our uh, Long Room Hub director, Eve Patton, who says fascinating talk, thanks, uh, in terms of a revision of the post-Enlightenment paradigm how does this incentive towards vertical travel and its various associations relate to the quest for difference in a traditional travel encounter? Do these localized deep experiences allow for difference or merely provide a replication of universality? Very interesting question. Yeah, I think to some extent, this is one of the things that, that Hall was trying to get at um, in the, 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 this notion of vernacular uh, cosmopolitanism, because I think that, you see, there had been uh, traditionally the kind of notion that, that the, the reason that, you know, in Descartes' world, you had to go off and, and read Le Grand Livre du Monde, is that if you, like, if you stayed put, um, that, you know, you, you would end up with a degree of kind of 
linguistic, culture, and so on, homogeneity, you've never changed your mind, uh, you, you, you've remained you know, faithful, the same kind of sets of, of values and so on. Um, and, and what Hall was trying to, to get at, it seems to me, um, was that, um, and, and, and Clifford with this notion of, of kind of travel stories, is um, that, that we need to think again a, a, about this, um, that we need to think again about, you know, somehow the kind of the point of departure being homogenous and difference always being situated uh, elsewhere. Um, because the, the, one of the difficulties with that is it kind of it homogenizes both here and it homogenizes homogenizes elsewhere. Whereas if you if you take it uh, from this kind of the, the vertical traveling perspective, it's the notion um, that you know <laughs> difference is always already there. You know, um, but, but that by by engaging it with it in your kind of proximate spaces. It, it prevents the kind forms of cultural complacency that can then become toxic uh, when it leads to the kind of the universalizing uh, through populism of some kind of you know homogenous notion uh, of, 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 of place and being and, 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 and so on. So I, I think to some extent what, what um, uh, I would have in mind there is, is a way of, of trying to, to destabilize uh, or to, to call into question uh, or, or undermine um, that, that, that particular, that those forms of, 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 of universalism. Mm -hmm. Thanks a lot. Um, I have another question here, uh, namely uh, by Berade Przetpelski. Uh, he says, uh, I would be interested to know how the project of new animism relates to the project of decolonization. How quickly writes uh, Nicholas Mirzaev in his uh, 2018 critique of the material non-human uh, and universalist turn in academic discourse in the essay, it's not Anthropocene, it's white supremacy scene. How quickly we seem to forget all the work that has been done to establish how and why so many people have been designated as non-human and bought and sold as material objects. What do you think about the limits of universalist new animism that valorizes the non-human and the more than human? Yeah, no, I mean, this, um, that, that, that's, a, uh, that's an extremely good uh, question. There's a, a, a French Caribbean thinker called uh, Malcolm uh, Ferdinand, and um, he wrote a book last year called uh, Une Ecologie Decoloniale. And, and one of the points that, that, that Ferdinand uh, makes in this book uh, is is precisely he, he uses the, the when he talks about the the, the term Anthropocene um, he uses the term that was coined by Don Harwin and others uh, the plantation Ocene he also talks about the um, what he calls the the Anglocene um, because of the, the the role of Anglophone powers and then the kind of the, in, in slavery although the French had a very uh, prominent role it, it, it has to be said uh, very very much so but um, but one of the, 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 the points that that uh, Ferdinand makes is that, that the, the, when we go back to this kind of what what Val Plum calls the hyper, hyper separation uh, where on the one hand you've got the notion of reason you've got the notion of uh, of intellect um, and of course uh, as it turns out uh, reason and intellect are practiced by white males. Uh, and then on the other side, um, you've got nature, you've got the body, uh, you've got the female, uh, and you've got colonized peoples, the subordinates. So, so what you find then is uh, a language um, 
the, the, the way in which the uh, animal metaphors are employed, right? um, that races um, that are enslaved uh, are colonized, uh, are also animalized. Um, they're treated as less than, than human, which of course is why they're denied uh, a whole series of uh, fundamental, uh, fundamental rights. So what you find in the progressive forms of, of new animism is precisely a recognition uh, of that the repudiation of animism uh, was, was by exactly those forces uh, that enslaved countless millions of human beings, that that kind of ideology of hyper-separation uh, uh, became uh, a kind of justificatory uh, ideology for enslavement itself. And what um, progressive forms of new animism are, are doing is to, to try and undo uh, that particularly boundaries so that it allows for uh, emancipatory discourses in a whole series uh, of uh, different uh, areas and in, in contexts and environments. Thanks a lot. I have a last question here, um, which I would like, because we have to close uh, then, um, uh, unfortunately, uh, we could of course go, go, go on much longer. You gave us so much to chew on, Michael. Uh, we actually would need a nice glass of red wine and, and a long discussion. Indeed. <laughs> I mean, there's so many things going on in my head alone, and I'm sure uh, it's also in, in, in other people's heads. Um, I have a last question here uh, by uh, one of our postgraduate students. Uh, he said, uh, can you talk a little bit about your thought on travel in regards to technology in the context of COVID-19, especially in relation to intimate experience and material encounter. So this kind of uh, virtual material uh, thing uh, obviously is, is, is being asked here. Hmm. Well, one of the things that um, um, in thinking about what's happening is that I find myself um, going back and, and reading a lot of phenomenology, <laughs> going back to, uh, you know, uh, Husserl and uh, Merleau-Ponty and some, because I, I've been trying to uh, understand, you know, what is it about this experience, the experience I'm having just now is, as, um, you know, I, I'm talking to an audience that I largely can't see. Um, I mean, I sense <laughs> uh, the audience there. So, so what the notion of, of, of proximity uh, and uh, intimacy, uh, what that involves in these new spaces. And in particular, I suppose, um, I mean, there's, there's two aspects. One is political uh, and the other is ontological. Uh, the political is that I'm just desperately depressed at the fact that we're making tech giants <laughs> Uh, even richer than they already are. I, I, I think there's the, the, is an extremely dangerous monopolization of all kinds of, 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 of spaces uh, as a result of this. But, but at an ontological level, it's the sense that um, what one of the, the effects of the new technologies, it seems to me, uh, if, although new is kind of, they've been around for so long, I don't know if that adjective uh, applies, in, but of our contemporary technologies, is that it, it does feed, it seems to me, something that I referred to in answer to the last question, is this kind of hyper-separation, the notion of the, the disembodied, disincarnate, uh, rational agent, you know, which, and I think it's no accident that so many of the kind of white supremacist male patriarchal discourses are, are, are so invasive uh, in the, the kind of the, 
the, the maybe the kind of the uh, it's social media because it, it it seems as almost as if it's kind of amplifying a, a paradigm that's exacerbated by the technologies them, them, themselves. So it's 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 how we think, uh, you know, about you know bodies on the streets in terms of political change, you know, but also about um, how that link between um, embodiment in a kind of phenomenological uh, three-dimensional uh, sense, um, you know, uh, how this relates then to the, the new forms of electronic uh, literacy. So it's, um, it's, it, it seems to me this, it's one of the big, big questions of, uh, of, of the moment, absolutely. Thank you so much, Michael. I think we have to conclude now. Thank you all for your uh, for your attendance. It's uh, it's fantastic to start with seventy people. Our research seminar. These are the blessings of uh, of, of webinars and of online um, uh, seminars uh, like this. I wish you a wonderful evening. Thanks uh, a lot, particularly to Michael for having you, you. for having us uh, in in your headroom, as it were. And uh, I hope to see you again in two weeks' time. I think next week there's going to be. Um, uh, a research seminar by the School of English. Thanks. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.